right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. All right, welcome back to another episode of the No Laying Up podcast. Going to be a little change of pace from our recent interviews and group sessions we've done. I recorded this interview uh, about two months ago with Pia Nilsson and Lynn Marriott. They are from Vision 54. We'll get into a bit of that. We don't do a lot of game improvement stuff, but I've gotten a lot of questions. If you guys listen to the Goals podcast on the trap draw that we did at the uh, end of last year, beginning, beginning of this year, I don't remember exactly when it was, I talked about this book called Be a Player and how much it has helped me with my golf game. And I got enough requests from people that they wanted to actually hear from the authors on on the book and how it's, you know, how it's helped me and what the mental philosophies are. I learned way more about the mental side of golf than I even knew existed. And we go through a lot of that with Lynn and Pia. I try not to make it about my golf game too much, but I kind of thought it would be somewhat interesting material to kind of have them coach me a little bit and talk through some of the things that I think I learned and have them really explain it to. So you don't have to have read the book. I encourage people to go pick up the book and I think you'll want to after you've listened to this. But I, you know, with this downtime, if you're not able to play golf right now, listening to it, it's a good time to maybe take a fresh approach to the game when you do pick the clubs back up. And this is no better place to learn it. I, I honestly believe that I've I've uh, it's hard to overstate how much impact this book has had on my game. So enjoy the interview. Before we do get rolling too, uh, we've talked, of course, about the impact the COVID-19 situation is having on global tours, golfers and everything that's trying to join them. The one of the players is Shintero Band. He's a 24 year old native of San Jose. He was a first team All-American at UNLV, played four years at UNLV. He was on the 2018 Palmer Cup team. He won four times his senior year semifinalist for the Ben Hogan Award. He played on the McKenzie Tour and was getting ready to head out to play PGA Tour China. But the uh, global pandemic has his entire situation up in the air. The Callaway golf team was actually out shooting content with him as he found out about the latest postponements. And that's part of the video profile about him that they just posted today. Check it out to learn his stories, how he got to UNLV, what it was like playing at the U.S. Open at Shinnecock, what his daily training is like. I got a bunch of footage from his gym workouts and all that kind of stuff, which add that in with some of the mental stuff you're about to learn. I'm sure you'll become a much better golfer. So it's pretty intense. It's uh, it's an interesting look at how guys that want to be tour players spend their time. I've been fortunate enough to spend, you know, a lot of time around a lot of those guys around here in Jacksonville and the depth of the amount of players that are at that level will absolutely amaze you. So you can watch the video on Callaway's YouTube channel youtube.com slash Callaway Golf. That's youtube.com slash Callaway Golf for a great introduction to Shintero Ban. Without any further delay, let's get to today's interview. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. I'm thrilled to be joined today uh, via the phone with Pia Nilsson and Lynn Marriott. They are the uh, the co-authors of the book I've been telling you guys about called Be a Player. Um, first things first, when there's when there's two voices on, I have to try to uh, make sure that we can identify the difference in the two voices. So I do want to hear a bit of your backgrounds. Pia, let's start with you. Uh, if you could give us your golf background and Lynn, if you could provide yours as well. 
Yeah. And uh, so I will be having my swinglish accent. <laughs> so <laughs> anyways, I, I started playing golf already when I was six years old because my family played in Sweden. But I, I grew up through in Sweden through junior golf. And even during my time, we had junior programs in Sweden and I did really well. And then I ended up going to colleges, Arizona State and and played on the team. And then I played professionally. And uh, I actually never, ever planned on being a coach ever. It just kind of happened to me <laughs> because as I went back to Sweden, everybody said, oh, wow, what did you learn? And I realized I had so much I wanted to share. So I just checked out supporting younger players a little bit. And then I fell in love with being a coach and everything I've learned and experienced started to make sense. So, so I've been a coaching golf now for over 30 years and uh, it's pretty awesome yeah i want to get into kind of some of where you learned some of the concepts that you teach uh who you learned that from and how you learned it but lynn first if we could get uh, some of your background as well and how you and uh, pia met yeah so i um I, I started golf as a family adventure with my mom because she wanted to she didn't want to be a golf widow i often tell that because my dad was such an avid golfer uh, so we learned together, and then uh, I played golf at Penn State on a, a scholarship. And straight out of college, I, I started teaching golf. And I was one of the first women to become a member of the PGA of America. And I knew straight away I wanted to be a golf teacher, um, not a director of golf or head professional or any of that in the business. I, I just loved helping people. And uh, so I was a, I've been a golf professional really uh, since I graduated from college, mainly in teaching. And I was first, of course, a technical teacher because that's what all of our training is in. I found there were real limits to that. And I and I often tell this story is that I read every book. I went to all the seminars. I, you know, I really wanted to be a good swing teacher. And so people, when they came to me, they, they got better golf swings or better parting strokes or chipping strokes or whatever we were working on. But then they went out to play golf and they often didn't play better. And uh, honestly, some would come in and they played worse. And as a young golf professional, I said, well, that's not my fault. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I don't know what's going on out there. And that's the truth. I didn't know what was going on out there and out on the golf course when they went to play golf. So, I actually got interested and curious in that. And um, so that led me on a journey to learn more than just the technical part of teaching golf. And um, and P and I, we, we played college golf at the same time yeah. at Arizona State and Penn State. Um, but we really didn't start working together till like the mid 90s. Yeah. And before that, what had happened was I went to a lot of educations in the U.S. and at that time, usually the only other female younger participant was Lynn. So we, we ended up <laughs> going to the same trainings over and over again. So we became super good colleagues. And then over time, we realized that we, we, you know, I had my experiences as a player and Lynn as a teacher, but we both felt that we could do more in golf coaching, golf teaching, and we had some similar beliefs about that we need to look at more the whole game. We need to look more what actually happens when golfers play on the golf course and have that as our main filter. Yeah, and it's amazing to me how golf instructors, you know, there's so many golf instructors from a technical side. I could name, you know, 20 of them right now. But when it comes to the mental side of golf, I feel like 
Bob Rotella is the one that has come to mind before I became familiar with you guys and how it, it doesn't seem to be the same uh, landscape and that there's so many professional players that will go to Bob Rotella for help on their mental game. And I'm just always curious, I, I, I'm speaking for you guys alone, how how you became, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the phrase experts on the mental side of golf, how you, where did you learn it from? It's something that so many people are trying to channel, which is an understanding of the mental side of golf, but how did you become experts in that side? Well, it came from me as a player because I had really, really good teachers. and But I knew things were happening on the course where swing didn't show up. So for me, it became first as a search for myself. And then when I started in coaching and coaching first the, the Swedish players, and I, I was watching them play on the golf course, and I realized there's so much things happening out there on the golf course that I'm not sure that they're teachers back home know about so I would keep making notes and sending it to them so that's how it started to be like discovered for me I just think from what you said to the that they're kind of we need to realize there are two sets of golf fundamentals there are you know technical fundamentals and then there are the playing fundamentals or the human fundamentals and we want to go beyond it's not just about mental it is about managing your body managing your mind managing your, your emotions on the golf course but they're like core golf skills that all the great players through the history of time somehow figured out how to do <laughs> yeah no and that's it's it's got to just it's it's hard to explain it i guess is where i i would imagine you guys are uh really have the edge in your profession but can you explain kind of to the listeners the concept behind vision 54 i know we have talked about it some on here and we have uh talked some with area jutanagarn about it but what the, the what the name means and and why it uh it is something that people should try to channel yeah so of course 54 is a number and we believe, uh, honestly believe in our heart of hearts that a player will shoot 54 or lower one of these days. We don't know when it's going to happen, but we believe it will happen. We've been fortunate to coach two two players who shot 59 um, on a par 72 course, and that's Annika Sorenstam, of course, and then Russell Knox as well. Um, but not quite at 54. <laughs> so, it, <laughs> so it is a number. And um, but for for, you know, the average golfer, including ourselves, like we don't believe we can shoot 54, but we can set different numbers for ourselves that we're moving towards excellence. And the most important thing about the, the number is that we want any golfer to look at their possibilities instead of limitations. So like, what are the possibilities of growth or learning or improving things? And that we always look through that lens. And that's the most important meaning of the uh, of the 54 and it's actually when I was Swedish head coach and I was getting frustrated that many of the youngest Swedes had so many excuses why they couldn't be good <laughs> so one of the guys I work with his name is Shelly Enhager they started thinking like you know they all have made birdies on each one of the holes at the home course or most of them had so what would ever happen if you did it during the same round? So it started as a way to change the mentality from excuses to going for something. And then it ended up being a brilliant way of thinking for, for me and then for Linamid in our company. And I promise I'm not going to make this uh, an en entire lesson for just myself. But uh, as I relate <laughs> to it, the, the, what I took away from that is – 
and it's kind of some from some of the other mental books and, and whatnot that I've read is about an, an acceptance of your abilities. And I'm not sure if acceptance is the right word because for me personally, my best round ever is a 66. I've done it exactly one time, but I'm I'm not saying I'm trying right now to stand over almost every shot and say like you are a 66 shooter. Like that is you. That is who you are. And while that might not be realistic, I'm way more likely to shoot 70 on that day than if I stand on that first tee and tell myself, like, I am a 70 shooter. So wh- why is that? Yeah. Well, first of all, Chris, what, what is your eclectic score at the course? You, you know, have, have you had 54? Have you shot a 54? Have I, um, I have on one of the courses that we play. So we actually do a challenge every year where, you know, we have to try to birdie every hole on the course. And so we have kind of like a ringer score that we try to get throughout the year. But yes, I have, I have gotten birdies on every hole. Okay. So see, <laughs> you've already <laughs> realized your vision 54, but as Pia said, not in the same round yet, <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I think, you know, standing up on the tee and saying, I am more of a 66 than I'm a 70 is an awesome thing. But then we also say, you know, so that's a mindset. But then as we talk about in the book and, and, and how we coach is then you need to put action on things that are under your control. Yeah. But what what you said, you know, is so true and it goes for anything. If you're running a hundred meter race, you know, you need to make sure you're looking at something way beyond the finishing line to make sure you're speeding through the finish. So, you know, it's just a concept we, we need. So when you, you know, feel your 66 shooter, like you said, you're more likely to shoot as low as possible, which is the whole point. So it doesn't mean we're disappointed not shooting 54. It's just a, a belief inside of myself that I have more possibilities in me that haven't been, you know, come alive yet. Mm-hmm. Well, before we get too deep on some of these concepts, uh, there's a lot that I do want to cover. But uh, in an effort of full disclosure of your guys' books, I've only read Be a Player. And that is the book that I've, I've raved about. I hope you've seen a spike in book sales recently. I know a lot of people have reached <laughs> out asking about it. But I know that's the one that's right. helped me a bunch. But I, I, I want to talk about that. But I, first, I want to kind of get a full scope of what you guys have written and what the timeline of that is. And the reason I'm asking that is I want to know where this book falls in that timeline and if this is the book that makes the most sense for people to start with right away. I know we have a wide range of handicappers that listen to this show and different books potentially might suit different players. So I'm wondering if you could kind of give us a full scope of uh, of the materials that are available out there and where this book, Be a Player, falls in that timeline. So, of course, you know, Be a Player being the latest one, we have extra <laughs> emotions into because it's, we feel it's very applicable for any golfer and so much space too on what you can just do while you play on the course. So, but our first book, it was called, or it still is called, Every Shot Must Have a Purpose. And it was... 2005. Yeah, it, it's it's still selling extremely extremely well, and many you know still love that book, and it's the one they always talk about. And it's probably more philosophical. It you know, Ron Syrik helped us write that one, and he attended our golf schools, and he just kind of helped us write it from just the perspective of what our philosophy that time, and it still holds true. It's not so concrete, but it it's many really enjoy that book as yeah. a as a getting a first feel what we what we believe about the game yeah and then we um, we had been researching practice a lot and reading 
up on the practice science and meeting with researchers who were, you know, Dr. Anders Ericsson and others that were researching practice. So our second book is called The Game Before the Game. Mm -hmm. And it's actually um, out of print. That's how books can can happen. But we just got the rights to it. So we're going to republish it (laughs) and update it with some more of uh, the recent practice science. And then our third book, is called Play Your Best Golf Now. And that's when we started really trying to, because readers were asking for it. They're like, I can't come to a golf school. So what do you, what is it you guys do? So uh, Play Your Best Golf Now really distills down into more, you know, the tactics of Vision 54. And that's where we started outlining, outlining uh, what we call the essential playing skills. Yeah, so I would say anyone new to it, if you go with the first book or the, our last book, The Be a Player, you're really, it's like, it's going to be awesome. And if you're interested in knowing more, you go with the middle books. <laughs> yeah, and I, I also will say uh, about 10 years ago, we were one of the first to do it. We, we developed our own iPhone app and it's all around practice. And boy, we put everything we had into that iPhone app. So it's a big app. Uh, with a lot of things. But, it, you know, again, if you're one of these golfers who likes to practice and you know you need to bring more variability into your practice, then our iPhone app is really awesome. A quick break here to talk about our friends at Mar Shoes. I have been looking for an excuse to wear these shoes since they came in. Of course, the COVID crisis makes it a little difficult to fit it in. I wore them on a bike ride the other night. I was impressed with how flexible they were. Uh, loafers can be a bit too stuffy. I know I don't, a lot of people have been reaching out since the last ad asking about these shoes and how they're looking for a shoe you know, to wear to and from the golf course. You know, Sneakers might be a little bit too casual and Sperry's and whatnot. They can start smelling really bad really quickly. Uh, these have an odorless, a breathable odorless lining. They're waterproof. The leathers are waterproof. They're 100% handmade and hand-stitched in traditional Portuguese fashion. I have been sporting, of course, blue, but the uh, the Waterman, that's my favorite one. They've got customizable bearings on them. They let you swap out styles to change the look of your shoe while you're traveling. Instead of traveling with multiple pairs of shoes, you can just switch out the bearings. You don't even have to switch out the sole. They're, they're awesome. They're perfect for spring, perfect for summer, whether you're heading out to play some golf, going to the office, or going to the bar. Legitimately, any situation, you can wear these shoes. And as I mentioned, you can wear them even riding your bike so you can go to riomarshoes.com use code nlu15 today and you can get 15 percent off your first pair and any extra set of bearings that you want uh, if you want something special just email the commodore he will do his best to oblige don't worry about the sizing and fit they want to make sure that you are happy with your kicks and they will gladly exchange them for you again that's riomarshoes r-i-o-m-a-r shoes.com use promo code nlu15 for 15 percent off at checkout let's get back to today's interview well i do i do want to dive a bit into some of the specifics on be a player and again i'm kind of relating this off of a lot of the questions that i've received and this this part might be a bit long-winded on my part but it really did hit me right off the bat before before you even got into ways to address the issues of uh, the way a golfer thinks or the way i i think you simply ask the reader, or in my case, I listen to the audiobook, the the listener, some questions. And I've gotten a decent amount of coaching in recent months, and I've noticed that pretty much any coach I've talked to has made a lot of their points through asking questions. I worked, I actually had a putting session with Brad Faxon this week, and one of the first questions he asked me was, what was my routine on putts? And as soon as he asked it, I felt like an idiot because I realized I didn't have a routine. <laughs> and just that way of getting a point through... And uh, it, it kind of seemed like 
the concept was letting the student come to the conclusion on their own. And for me personally, at least, that, like, that really worked. And so when I got to your book, the question, I think it's in chapter one you asked, and it's, I, I'm paraphrasing the question, but it's very simple. It's, what is your reaction to bad shots? Do you get upset? Do you talk down on yourself? And I specifically remember being in the car where I was, and my eyes just opened very wide as if to say, oh, they are talking about me right now. <laughs> and it, it honestly helped, but it changed my outlook on golf. And it seems so simple, and it's it's kind of why I've, I feel like I've been hesitant to even dive into the middle side of golf is I felt like everything was going to be cheering up like, Hey, be, just be positive and just think positively and you'll be great. But this really, it seems so simple. And I, I feel kind of silly asking you to explain that thought, but for that specifically talking about your reaction to bad shots, this is the part that resonated with me. I'm wondering if you can expand on why that has such a profound effect on a player's confidence. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and that's why it's so cool. We live today when we know so much more about the neuroscience and all of that, but any human no matter where you are on the planet and any, anything we react to with an emotion, the brain picks up as, as a stronger memory. So, you know, if you go to a movie that is totally engaging and emotional, you remember a lot of things from the movie. If you go to a movie that is, you're not interested and there's no engagement, you don't even remember two days later what it was about. So it's just a human function that we have. So in golf, we need to be careful because how I react to the shot emotionally decides what the brain picks up as a stronger memory. So we have noticed through the years that so many golfers, when they hit good shots, they stay more objective. So, oh, that was good. You know, we're high achievers, so we just have no emotion to it. And then anything that is like on the toe or not pure or whatever, we go like, ah. Oh, shoot, I didn't want to do that. And always some emotional reaction. So you might be highly skilled technically, but your confidence is so low because you, you're just going to easier coming up to shot to remember misses instead of remember hitting good shots. <laughs> and it's an interesting thing because I, I think you said it really well, Chris. Like I used to think, you know, years ago, it was more of a behavior thing. Oh, cheer up, be positive. But it actually it has very little to do with your behavior. It has more to do, as Pia just said, with the biology. And when we understand this whole neuroscience piece of how, our, how all of us form memories, then it becomes actually a performance skill. And we, we often tell this story about when Suzanne Pedersen first came for coaching. She actually attended our golf school like like many professionals. That's their first encounter with us and learning all this. And as she heard this, she like raised her hand and she goes, um, what do I do? I've never stored anything positive in my entire life. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, you know, like she she had always thought that like the post shot reaction was more about etiquette and, you know, just being being a good person. And she wasn't interested in it. But when she found out actually was tied to her performance and that if she would look at it as a skill and a, a trainable skill and it would affect her performance, then she was interested. And that's the one thing I took away from it is just not even the post-shot reactions. It's just in general negative self-talk. And it's amazing how much better I am now at identifying it when I hear it because I hear other people say it. 
And honestly, when I'm in a tournament and I hear somebody say like, oh, I always go right on this hole or I, I just can't putt these greens or oh, blah, blah, blah. I, I automatically think like, okay, well, I'm going to beat that guy because, and I've made a vow to myself now not to, you can't say things like that. You can't put, you know, I, I, people I think want to voice some of their internal thoughts to make them feel better about it. But I think saying some of these things out loud is just programming yourself into thinking, yeah, I do always go right on this hole or I may, yeah, I do stink at putting these greens and it's just yeah. amazing. Yeah. Like I said, it's just amazing to me how much that thing sticks out to me now. Yeah. You know, it's, it's super amazing. And you know, we, we just did the coaching with a very good um, men's college team a couple of months ago. And they, they, they just decided to, as a team, and certain words and things they're just going to quit saying because they realize like it's not helping us whatsoever to <laughs> reach our goals. <laughs> and uh, so we just need to understand how it actually, like Lynn said, affects the way we're reacting, the way we're talking to ourselves and each other. It just affects our performance. Yeah, I, I just have to share their collective, like the word that came up is each player had to, to pick a word they wanted to extract <laughs> that if they extracted that word from their self-talk, like it would have a big impact on their game. And <laughs> common word was suck. <laughs> <laughs> if they could just extract, you know, I suck out of wherever. Yeah, so. but you know, even, you know, Annika Sorenstam, she had all kinds of tricks like this from all her great performances. But I you know, remember the final round of the US Open at the uh, pine needles and she was so stressed and she knew she would easily like have doubting self-talk during the round and wondering if she's going to keep her lead and all of that so she just decided off the bat that she was just going to tell herself fairway green fairway green fairway green and just say that to herself anytime between shots just to make sure her mind doesn't you know worry about the future <laughs> so so when you talk to the greatest players, many of them, they've had all kinds of little tools in the back pocket that many golfers don't know about. Yeah. And that's where I, I, I've at least, I used to think that I used to base way too much of my attitude on things that happened early in the round. And honestly, mm. I, now that I say it out loud, it sounds very silly, but I would think a birdie on the first hole means I'm going to shoot 68 today. <laughs> and a bogey on the first hole means I'm going to shoot 78. And we're talking about a variance in two shots, but it would have in my mind, a 10 shot swing on how things were going to go. And something I've talked to a decent amount of pros about is that and I can honestly tell a difference even with professionals on how well they can handle things that have already happened to them. And if they're talking about on the ninth hole, they're talking about a hook that they hit on the second hole. That's probably not a good mental place to be and that you have to be able to reset yourself and trust the player that you are into the next shot rather than dwelling on things that recently happened. That's kind of my way of phrasing based on what, yes, what I've very read. Good. Can you expand on kind of that, why that has, you know, can have such a negative effect on you if you're, if you're letting things hang on for too long? Well, yeah. but it is because we, we, we can't predict what happened. I mean, it's like every day when we go on the golf course, we have no idea if it's going to be a good day, bad day, in between day. We never know, but we know Every shot we hit could, has a possibility of being great, you know. So we need to like realize there's no way we can know just because I made started with three birdies or just because I started with three three putts. It still doesn't tell us anything what's going to happen on the next hole. 
but you need to stack the deck with habits and actions that makes it more likely that you're going to pull it off. And and in an, or getting in that prediction game is usually not good for anyone. It's just you know it's one shot, one hole, and how can I give every shot full respect and full focus no matter what? And and to be clear, I'm probably giving off the uh, the impression that I'm much better at golf than I am because these are things that I'm still I, I I like saying them out loud because even after reading the book and I'm on my second listen of it, I struggle with it. I don't it's it's not there a hundred percent of the time. So maybe that's maybe I'll use this for for some self help right here. So even if I understand these concepts and I can't help in the middle of a round, my mind wandering and wavering. If a student comes to you and says this, like I can't help where my mind is going, how would you address that? What would you what would you say to that that player? First, what you just said there, just understanding these concepts, Lynn's often say, what is it you say? Well, that understanding <laughs> these concepts is the booby prize. Yeah. You actually <laughs> have to do them. Yeah. And and this Practice this it. thing with self talk, I just want to say because it's going to keep wandering. Because that's what the mind does. I mean, the research says that we have upwards of 70,000 thoughts a day. And if you think you're on a golf course for four to five hours, it's a lot of thinking. It's a lot of thoughts. And, you know, they're pinging all over the place. They're running to the future, they're running to the past, they're running to, you know, the shopping list. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're, they're going all over the place. And so this ability to notice and then come back to being present that's often like an overused term but we, we have a player we've been working with for a couple of years and you know he's on a journey back to find his game he, he's won a masters but he had a really good round last week and he said the text he sent us is that the best thing that's happened is he noticed his mind wandering and he just came back to being present and so again it's it's a constant thing it's not like you just arrive at being present you're always having to manage that and you're managing it mentally, and you're managing it emotionally, and you're managing it actually physically. Yeah. And what what is so important and for us, it's been a long journey that you know, for a long time we've known about this concept, but it doesn't help golfers. So that's why we so much making these skills applicable and trainable and scalable. Because you know, if you if you want to get stronger. Physically, you go to the gym and you get the practice plan. If you want to get better technically, you get some lessons and you get drills to do. But when it comes to this, the human skills of the game, which includes the mental, you, they need to also be applicable, and they need to you know, need to have exercises how to train them in a golfing environment. So that's why we spend so much time. Uh, building up a very big library of, of doable things to do. So golfers go from understanding it to actually taking action on it and getting reps in so it can become a new habit. Hmm. Yeah. Well, this next part is maybe the part I'm most excited to talk about because when I have tried to explain this to people, it has gotten the most bizarre looks uh, possible. So I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping you could explain it better than I can. But the concept between the left brain and the right brain functions of a golf swing and what really, really helped me uh, as I was listening to this was the understanding and the explanation that all, like literally no human is capable of telling their body exactly what to do. And and I, the more I thought about that, the more I think back to my best rounds of golf, and I can tell you what my swing feels were in that round. But they almost, almost all of those rounds I would describe as some sort of a blackout where it just felt like I saw the target and I hit it there. And I didn't really realize it at the time, but I'm playing, I would imagine you would say I'm playing from the right brain side of, uh, of, of, you know, of my brain. 
How would you explain that concept, the relationship between the left brain and how you're trying to tell your body something to do and your right brain and your subconscious? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, Chris, the, the left brain, right brain model is kind of an old model. It still has validity, but it used to be, you know, everybody said, oh, when you're in your left brain, you're thinking and you're, um, you know, you're digital and detailing and that kind of thing. And when in your right brain, you're imaginative and it's spatial and it's um, there's no time and that kind of thing. And that still exists. But we now know, I mean, we're in 2020, this can be related to very specific brainwave patterns. And we talk about it and people just say this, like we talk about that there's really three kind yeah. of yeah, this is um, modes you could be yeah. in. So if you think about the human brain, so you can like think, be logical thinking, you know, you need to before every shot, you know, it's 150 yards, went right to left, I want to make a three-quarter backswing, whatever it means. So you're thinking and it, if you measure your brain waves, you have a lot of what they call beta brain waves and they're faster in your brain. But when you step into a golf shot, you're going to be an athlete, you're a performer. No difference if you're a golfer, if you're basketball player, if you're a musician, if you're a surgeon, when you step into performance to be at your best, you need to be done thinking. <laughs> you step into being in, in more of a sensory mode, meaning you might you might see the ball flight, you might experience the tempo, but you, you're actually in a sensing modality and you can measure that through the brain waves. They're going to be more what they call alpha ones. And then from there, Sometimes we slip, slip into the flow when we lose track of time. We don't even remember kind of what we did. We're just, being, we're just like, we're just doing it. It's like, and measure that in, in other brainwaves, theta and others. So, so the whole point is that peak performance, you need to be done thinking, preparing, having a checklist and step into more of a sensory modality. And, and, and that's what we're talking about here. And it's like it's it couldn't be researched more or proven more. And it's just golfers sometimes they are stuck in because it's not a reactionary sport. So we step into shot and you you can start thinking even more because the ball is just sitting there. But it's not good for peak performance. Yeah. And I, I just want to say that that's what makes our sport so challenging but fun is that we have to do that for every shot. We go from this thinking cognitive state, which is looking at the numbers and planning the shot, making a decision on the club, to now we actually have to switch into the sensory. You know, it's like being on the free throw line for every single shot. And as Pierre just said, it's not reactionary, but it can be trained. And it's a real trained discipline to go from planning to now sensing and being athletic. Mm -hmm. and, and I might be misremembering this, but the part that really resonated with me in the, in that, you know, how it was said at least, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I don't remember it right, was it even somebody like Tiger Woods can't from his left brain tell his body exactly what to do. And when he's playing his best golf, he is, that is coming in some way from his subconscious. Well, he can, but it's just not very productive. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we can always talk to ourselves in state in a thinking state, but it's just not our best performance state. I mean, being a bit sarcastic, but yeah, I mean, even the best in the world, they, you know, it, it's sometimes it's it's more challenging than others to turn that off and get into a deep sensory state. Yeah, and, and when you talk to them when they played the very best, they always. They always express more sensory 
things that experience or that they're just totally in the flow. They're just doing it. They might say, I have a swing thought, but when you actually ask them, it's usually always just a feel they have in the swing. And the interesting thing, just bringing up Tiger, you know, just listening to his interviews, if you really listen and he's divulging, and this was years ago in a 60 Minutes interview, he was asked, what did he like most about competition? And he straight away said, my senses get heightened. So, you know, he feels things deeper, the rhythm is more, and the tempo of the swing is more accessible, you see things clearer. That is a, again, that is a very different state than than a cognitive thinking state. And one of the, you know, getting into kind of some of the more specific uh, things that you you come back to a lot in the book being balance, tension, tempo, awareness. And, and tension is something that I think I've been pretty vocal about in recent months. Specifically, we did a podcast with Brendan Todd a few uh, months ago, and he talked about some of the, the full swing, long iron yips he was having and how much of that tied back to tension in the arms. And I realized as he was saying it, I'm like, Oh boy, I have too much tension in my arms. But can you, can you walk, walk us through why tension has such a profound effect on your golf swing? Cause I, I feel like I notice when I have less tension, I am getting maybe five to eight yards more out of every iron. And I, I couldn't tell you why. And I'm hoping you can help with that. Well, you know, usually when you have less tension, it's easier to have more, you know, speed in your movement. So, you know, if you really tighten your arm and move it, you can't move it very fast. But if you relax it, it's going to get a lot more speed. So we we always tell golfers, you know, no one can say if you should be totally supple and relaxed or having in between or firmer tension level. But every golfer needs to calibrate and check up, especially grip pressure and upper body jaw tension level to hit shots where you're very very loose and then go from loose to medium to firmer and just see what makes you putt better chip better swing better and there of course very many that realize like if i just drop it down a notch my whole sequence of my motion and everything improves and when it comes to the tension level it's it's so important that you keep it constant through the swing because when you change, for example, grip pressure, if you keep changing it during the swing, you, you change the club face. And we know that's not a very good thing. So it's all related to your technique. And every golfer's tension level changes. And that's why we need to, to check up on it and be aware of it so we can dial it in and calibrate it from day to day or even during rounds. Because I might be fine, but suddenly I get to... Number 14 is a tight drive, and I have some bad memories from the past, and suddenly my shoulders tighten up, and, and then uh, it makes me you know, not complete my swing, and I hook it in the trees. So, But it was all based on me not managing my tension level, and that's examples like that we see all the time, not on the range, but when we see golfers on the golf course. Yeah, and I, I just said, you know, again, we, we've looked at this, we try to find the research on this and they say that our TM joint, our jaw up there is is a very important joint in the body and it has more nerve endings on it than any other joint. And when that joint gets tight, it 
you know, moves down the neck to the shoulders, to the arms and so forth. It affects even messages to the brain. So we, we've known for a long time that that upper, that jaw tension or the TM joint needs to stay relaxed. And so we have players now, PA years ago had players try to hit drivers swinging at 100% tempo with a potato chip in their <laughs> between their teeth and could they keep it, you know, keep it, uh, not crunch it. Um, but anyways, we, we talk about this. We had a, a golf school where this uh, person attending said, well, you know, I'm, I'm really close to Jack Nicholas." And something he didn't share with many people was this, that when he wanted to pull a shot off, like he was really under a pressure situation, he made sure his teeth didn't touch. Hmm. So it's the same. It's the same thing. It's like, well, gee. There's Jack Nicholas doing this little human skill that's managing tension during a round. Everybody should have, you know, availability to that and be able to train to it. I was just going to tell one other story because you mentioned Brad Faxon earlier. So Brad's come for some coaching. and But when he first found out about us was he was given a copy of Be a Player. And it was actually when he was doing the broadcast at the Women's U.S. Open. And he left from doing that work to go play in the British Senior. And he got over there. And he texted us, he got our number and he texted us and he said, I'm doing some of these exercises from the book. And one in particular, this has to do more with tempo, but related to tension because they're like second cousins. He said, you know, I'm I'm making driver swings at like 50% tempo and I'm hitting it farther. (laughs) And he goes, actually, I'm hitting it by some of the guys. He goes, help me. How does does this work? (laughs) And so we... We kind of we sent back, you know, a message about how kinematic sequence gets more optimized and so forth. But, you know, he actually had a top 10 there and it's just so darn simple. But again, that was the part that got me too was the simplicity of it. Like it 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 all just seems like it should be obvious. And and I, I find myself, though, keeping having to refresh myself on some of these things because I'll go play two great rounds kind of with some of these processes and then I'll slip out of that consciousness. And I'm happy to report I was just at Brad's house this week. His book, the book is still sitting there on his shelf. It stuck out to me. I saw it there. I was like, hey, I hope you're reading this. <laughs> That's great. That's exactly a topic I wanted to talk to you guys about is working with professionals. And I guarantee it's each individual's different. But in general, if you can describe how the typical mental state you see players in when they begin working with you. Are you ever kind of in shock at how, I don't want to say mentally weak some players are, but how far some players have to go on the mental side? Well, you know, the the way we realize when we talk to players, they, they're just, they've never been exposed to it. They're just totally unaware, untrained. So, we usually frame it as that this is an extremely fortunate situation because they're already really good and they have they're totally untapped in accessing some of these human skills. So the possibilities for the future is enormous. So usually they just never, you know, they worked in their swing and they worked in the fitness and they, you know, figured out some many aspects of playing, but they have haven't sniffed this possibility. And even if we just ask them, you know, just tell us some of the things you do when you play well. And most even professional players, they can't answer beyond saying, I make putts and my drives are in the fairway. Because <laughs> they have yeah, never yeah, focused on it. Off some stats. Yeah, exactly. So we, we, but so men are like, you know, they are a little surprised, but we quickly want them to realize there's nothing wrong or there's nothing bad. It's just an untapped 
potential in front of them to to be even greater golfers and manage all the variability of the game. Yeah. You know, like when, when Area Jutanagarn came, we were like, hmm, wow, what a ball striker. I mean, she's got so many shots in her bag, and she'd never won on the LPGA. And, you know, she actually attended the golf school like Suzanne did, as I mentioned earlier, and as you know, many professionals do. And and two tournaments later, you know, she almost won. It was a women's first major. But that year she won five times. But the interesting thing, when you talk to her about it, maybe she did this with you in an earlier podcast, like she had no idea about her post-shot reactions. and no, She had no idea how to stay focused during the swing. So she was already so awesome. So just getting a hold of a little bit better focus and a little bit better managing, you know, her memory box or how she reacted to shots, you know, made all her brilliance just come alive. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of one of the things that, you know, I think I first heard of Vision 54 through talking to Aria about, we asked her kind of about the smiling that she'll do before shots. And it's not something she does on every shot, but it kind of was heavily featured during the U.S. Women's Open uh, coming down the stretch, I believe in 2016 at at, uh, at, at Shoal Creek, I think, is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that she would, you know, she, her round was spiraling away from her. She ended up winning it. But she would be smiling before every shot, and it looked like she was just trying to channel something. So I'm wondering how, and I know that that I would imagine that is not something you are, in, in, you know, teaching to every one of your students. But how you landed on that with her, and why that was, you know, something that she had implemented in her process. Yeah, it, it was fun. We we were um, earlier that year. We were in San Francisco at Lake Merced for the tournament, and we were out with a practice round. And I remember we stood on the third hole there at Lake Merced. It's a par three, and we said, "We want you just to try out some things." Both her and her sister. And and this is what we said. We we want you to just imagine this is the last golf shot you'll ever hit, ever. Like this is it, done, over. What do you want that to feel like? What is the state you want to be in? So with Aria, we call her May. Um, she stood there and was like, wow. And she didn't say anything, but all of a sudden this smile came across her face and she stepped in and just hit, I mean, a beautiful golf shot. So it was really the smile came from just imagining, you know, being very grateful for this like opportunity to hit a wonderful golf yeah. shot. Yeah, And it started with because she felt like, I get this now, I understand the play box, but, you know, I'm just having a hard time sometimes, you know, getting in there. I'm still thinking. So Linda and I just know we just need something when she's done with the decision making, something that makes her tap into really wanting and, you know, being excited about and happy about the golf shot instead of being scared and worried, which she had been in the past. And but like Linda said, this was just something that clicked for her, but it was the the feeling inside that just makes the slide happen. Well, we've kind of danced around this and not uh, covered it specifically, I don't believe, but just kind of, you, you mentioned the memory box, and, uh, and I heard you just mentioned the play box as well, but can you just kind of explain the concept of the think box, the play box, the memory box, and what role each of those plays and why that's important to kind of silo out those three different things? Well, because, you know, every shot we hit forever has a, a future. It's like, you know, need to plan and plan for the shot and think some through. And we, we think box, but it's every shot has a future. And the main thing is to make sure you make up your mind, you make a decision, <laughs> you create the go signal. So 
that's one piece. And then the play box, when you actually step in and making the swing, and like we talked about earlier, is in since golf is not a reactionary sport, what can you do to always step in and be athletic and sensory and focused till the end of the motion? And, you know, many have never thought about how can I actually stay focused till the end of the stroke or end of the swing. So that's the play box. And then every shot has a past, you know, you it goes somewhere. And what is the smartest way possible to react to a golf shot or a putt to create confidence for the future? So that is what the, the, the three boxes or the three steps of any golf shot you get. And just making sure you, you have the right way of doing that for you that makes your golf game fun and really great. We also think that there's such opportunity for players to manage themselves between shots, which is actually the majority of time we all spend on the golf course, you know, all that downtime between shots. But many, as we were talking about earlier, because like they start telling themselves stories or making up stories or narrative, you know, just learning how they can use that valuable time to keep their game going in the right direction is really important. So that all those skills between shots are important to learn. Mm-hmm. And in the book, you talk a lot about some of the the professionals that you work with, and you you name them by name. What what if you're you know if you're doing a seminar or teaching something? What what's a prime example of you know something that you feel you know you've talked about Kevin Streelman, Russell Knox, Lorena Ochoa. What's a good example kind of of some of the mental exercises that you've gone through with specific players? That story about area was was exactly kind of what I'm getting at here. And uh, I know there's some with Lorena Ochoa in the 18th hole at the U.S. Open. What are, what are kind of some examples? I know it always helps listeners when they can uh, look at a professional, what a professional is struggling with is kind of say, oh, well, if they're struggling with it, now I feel better about it. Yeah. Well, with, with Kevin, you know, we, we've coached him since he was just a journeyman and playing mini tours and then getting his PGA card and, and so forth and now having a great career as a PGA tour player. But when he first came, we had this conversation. He said, you know, I, I want to talk to you about something. He said, you know, sometimes I, I'm like standing over the ball and I'm like, I hear myself say it's going in the water or I hear myself say I'm going to three putt. He goes, does anybody else think that way? <laughs> and we, we just chuckle. We're like, Kevin, everybody thinks that way. Everybody, Tiger Woods. I mean, every person on the planet thinks that way. So the first thing is just to know we have all these thoughts during the day, you know, and many of the thoughts we have today, we're going to have the same ones tomorrow. Our brains are just repeating machines. And when a thought comes in like that, you don't have to believe it. And he just goes, oh. Thanks. So then he just did this little like we helped him with this, this little turnaround, which was that might pop in. And then he'd say to himself, Kevin, that's just a thought. That's not true. Where's the target? Oh, yeah. And that is like how it started. But one of my favorite things with Kevin, too, because he was close to winning, you know, quite a few times and he wouldn't pull it off. You saw it on TV was like he would just get way too fast, the adrenaline pumping, swinging too fast, a little tighter and, you know, missing the fairways. But when he finally did win in Tampa a couple of years ago and he called us, he said, I can't wait to tell you guys what happened because he walked off 17, leading by one. But he had a little conversation with himself because, he know, I'm so pumped up, you know, getting nervous. Kevin, like, manage yourself. And he, he he knows he gets too fast. So he changed his playbox focus for 18th hole, hitting his driver. And he he imagined feeling a 30% tempo swing with his driver. 
and he smoked it. You know, it looked like on TV, like he was swinging at 95%. But he'd finally, under pressure, learned that he can't do the same as he did the, early in the round. He needed to realize, I'm nervous, I'm like pumped up, my adrenaline is flowing, so I need to switch down feeling like a slow swing to end up being like a normal speed. And and those kind of examples we, we see all the time with players like we change, all of us change. We play with people that are better than ourselves, so type fairway, I'm close to lowering my handicap, but we need to learn how do I mess up <laughs> and then learn to have a different focus. Hmm. And that's you're getting kind of into a part of the book that I, I, I'm not going to say where I got lost. I just kind of started to panic a little bit in that I hadn't really <laughs> thought about whether I, I'm going to mess up the acronym, I think, is it the adrenaline factor. And was it cortisol that you're talking about or DHEA? Yeah. Or how to, explain that concept for, for me. Well, I mean, first of all, like as humans playing golf, our adrenaline is sometimes way too high. And sometimes we, since we're out in the golf course for so many hours, golfers need to like realize when do I need to take some deep breath and calm myself down? And when do I actually need to do some jumping jacks because I'm too sluggish? So the adrenaline piece is like huge and it, it's so easy to change. But, you know, as a golfer, you need to be aware and learn to do that. But then, of course, we know now too through all the, the signs that different emotional states make us release different hormones. And for example, if you have a lot of negative emotions, a lot of the hormone cortisol get released and it just makes the brain not function very well. It makes us make kind of not smart decision and it makes us, you know, not being able to feel our swing. So it's very interesting to realize that The emotional state I'm in can really help you swing better. It can really make it impossible to feel your swings. Yeah, so in in our first book, Every Shot Must Have a Purpose, we have a chapter, Anger Makes Us Stupid. But what we know (laughs) is just that when we get ourselves into such a negative emotional state and there's so much cortisol released, we actually don't have access to the abilities we need to play good golf. Visual acuity, reasoning, coordination, I mean, we talk about balance, tempo, and tension awareness. That's out the door <laughs> when we're in high states of cortisol. Yeah. I mean, you just can't access it. You know, and, and off the golf course, it's the same what happens when people get road rage. You know, it's just like they don't function very well. <laughs> so what we know is the interesting thing that DHEA, like you said, an acronym for a much longer word, but that it, uh, and DHEA is a hormone. And it's a performance-enhancing hormone. And it's such a performance-enhancing hormone that it is banned on the PGA Tour, LPGA Tour, you know, in the Olympics. But we create or we manufacture, if you will, DHEA naturally when we experience positive emotions. So you go, hmm, how can I create a little of that performance-enhancing hormone naturally? Well, it's just experiencing positive emotions. So that's when players like realize that, that it's not just happy thoughts, but it's actually positive emotions and you actually experience those positive emotions, it will have an effect on your brain, on the hormone release, and therefore then access to the things you need to play great golf. Hmm. Well, you guys, you might have created a bit of a monster here because I'm on the oh. tee, I'm on the tee in 40 minutes. And now that I have your phone number, Woo. if things don't go well in the first hole, I'm calling you. So we're, okay. You- <laughs> okay. So, so, so we love it. But you know, before we go and play, Chris, so what is one thing you're going to pay extra attention to today that's under your control? 
Because obviously you want to score well and play well, but what, what is it you're going to take action on? The, 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 the best thing today is not just tension, because I, I think a lot about tension, but it's tension throughout the swing. You said that. And I do, even if I'm, if I'm thinking about tension, I can get tense as I trigger into the downswing. So that's something I want to be conscious of and just thinking towards targets and stuff. But, well, as, as we wrap here, I, I kind of want to just bring this all full circle because I don't want anyone to walk away from this thinking that some of these concepts don't apply to them. So if you could kind of compare and contrast the things we've talked about here and how they relate to you know a 20 handicap or a 10, a scratch, a pro – and and just kind of I don't know if that's a great question, but just kind of reiterating that you know these are things that kind of apply to all levels of golf, and as well, just kind of other ways that people could be involved with uh, with Vision Fifty Four other than just the books. For sure, in in the, the human skills is it's so cool because we think the future teaching coaching of the game you learn that from the first lesson along with technical skills. So at our golf school we have higher handicaps with tour professionals because this is we're all on the even. Play playing field, learning these skills. So don't wait. The sooner you, you learn this and combine it with your technical skills, you're going to be a better player sooner, that's for sure. And, you know, of course, we've been super happy with, with our books and many like to listen to them or read them and our iPhone app. But we've created many to remote um, programs through our website, vision54.com, because some can come and see us in person, but many can't. So we... We're doing all kinds of things to be able to do it totally on your own, or you get some support more remotely, or you come and see us in person. And we had a, actually, it was a woman the other day who was kind of new to golf, but she was doing some technical things she had learned, and then she was doing these human skills. And in six months, she's brought her handicap down like 16 shots. 16. So that's like phenomenal. I know that's like phenomenal. And I, all I can say is I don't think she would have been able to do that if she only focused on the technical. But if you think of it as like, you know, no matter what I'm going to do to get better at this game, I'm going to continue to work on my technical skills and I'm going to continue to work on my human skills. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you guys both, Lynn, P.S., so much for uh, one, the book, and for taking the time to walk us through it. Again, I recommend it's called Be a Player for anyone out there listening, and uh, and appreciate all the help, and I'm sure the listeners will enjoy having uh, learned a lot about the mental side of golf. Thank, thank you, you so much. Really appreciate it. You bet. Cheers. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. Honey, that's... Better than most. How about in? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect anything.